Hey there. Sorry to keep you waiting. That door, it wasn't there before. Yeah, that's how I get around. Alright, let's see here. Are you God? Not exactly. Are you St. Peter? Oh, hardly. I'm an extraterrestrial. An extraterrestrial? Yes, I'm a new age God. Oh, right. We're part of a higher planes of existence. We help mortals achieve enlightenment. And now, I'll be your guide through the afterlife. Dante got Virgil and I get E.T. <laughs> what the fuck was that? Every time you make a joke, it triggers the laugh track. But then it's funny because, like I said, then you make that you make your feature, or you mm -hmm. make two features, and now you're going to make your short films, right? Yeah, that, that was odd. Yeah. No, no, but in a way it's interesting to see that progression because it's like, okay, I've sort of tested my feet in yeah. trying to do some ambitious things, but now maybe I'll try to take it, you know, to a little bit of like a smaller place. So then you have... Uh, Susie. Well, Susie in the Afterlife is the first one. Right? Yeah. Now, is that like... So on Find Nirvana, would you say... Like, this is kind of what I would sort of call, like, the, quote, like, one-man band sort of filmmaking, even though you had your yeah. EP producer. Yeah, well, I would say with, with Nirvana, like, yeah, I had, um, I, I did have the producer slash DP, and there was a sound guy, and there was a makeup guy, but on the whole, it wasn't really, like, my crew, crew, I hadn't really found my people yet. Yeah. Um, and Susie, I literally did everything on that film. Um, <laughs> that's all like even the sound, uh, mixing and stuff yeah, like that, right? I mean, it was, it was just me with the camera and the two actors and then I edited it on myself. Uh, I, the only expense on that entire film was the 12 bucks for the mini DV tape. I mean, <laughs> the camera was borrowed, the location was free, the editing was free. That's the best way to go about it when you can yeah. just get free things so that mm. you could just work out mm. whatever you're doing. Like, and that's a fun little movie. That's just like, uh, well, well, I'm trying to remember cause I haven't seen it in a while, but it's like a girl who's in a room and again, you have the voice. Yeah. Right? Or it, it's different than Nirvana cause there it's like a ghost, but well, here's here, a laugh track. Yeah. There's, there's a laugh track. It's a little bit more surreal. Um, I, that was the place I was interning at, and I had access to that conference room, and I actually used it in a lot of things. Like, I did script readings there, I filmed little skits there, and basically, this Susie in the Afterlife was the the most I got to use that room, and the one time I really got the location to work well. Yeah. Usually, everyone who sees that movie, whether they like it or not, they always say, like, you really use that space in a creative way. Yeah, I, I definitely think so, too. I mean, again, if you just, you have an actress in a room, yeah. but you kind of show that, you know, all, all, you know the, the gold cliche, all you need is a girl and a gun. Yeah. No, all you need is a girl in a room. Exactly. And a laugh track. <laughs> Like that that's a and that I think you're again maybe playing with uh it seemed like maybe you're playing a little bit with the ideas of faith maybe. Yeah. Um or just having a theatrical device to play with. Yeah, theatrical and uh criticism of religion. Mm -hmm. Um no that was I looking back on it just like we shot that whole thing in 6 hours. It was just me and the two actors and we shot the scenes of them together and he was done and then just shot her walking around. Mm. And she improved a little bit. And we shot on a Saturday, and then by the following Thursday night, it was done. That's the best way. That's, that, that's so satisfying. When you um, do that. It was, it, that was kind of like a YouTube skit that ended up being a lot better than I thought it was, and it oh, became okay. a film. And I would say, after Nirvana, 
Susie was the first film that came out the way I wanted it to, 100%. There you go. I was satisfied with that film. Yeah, well, again, if you're doing everything yourself, it's like, I have the vision for this. And Wait, so you were even handling the camera on that? Yeah. I mean, it's mostly tripoded, if you notice. Yeah, Uh, yeah, no, it was. But I'm just, I find that curious when, so you did have sort of one moment where it's like, okay, I am going to try a DP this time, so to speak. Yeah, I, I mean, there there isn't much to the DPing of that film. Um, uh, there's a light that I move around a few times, and I umbrella it. Um, and yeah, that's right you, But you still, like, had a vision yeah. that you're trying to execute. I, I would say that film had more of a vision than Nirvana did. Because mm-hmm. that film, like, I knew the sense of humor, and I yeah. knew how the laugh track was going to play. Well, Nirvana plays a little bit more... Uh, and you know, feel free to disagree with this, but it, it plays a little bit more like a mumblecore film. Yeah. That's that's perfect. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, um, and then of course the the next film, which was where I I met you, was yeah. uh, Cue the Six Train. Yeah, so um, that uh, that's a next step up. So that's the first time I'm really working with a crew, but I would say like really working with them, and like I'm yeah. I'm more of a director. You have, yeah, you have uh, a DP who isn't like moonlighting from his cooking yeah. scope. No offense to the guy. No, that's I mean, I accurate. Know, but you know, but you actually have someone who has his own equipment, yeah. And uh, you know, he has technique, and then you have other actors. Uh, like, um, so with these actors, you found them a similar way. Like, I know. Well, Audrey is the <laughs> yeah. sort of connecting tissue for us. That's right. how we met each other. Audrey Lorray right. is the star of Q the Six Train, as well as Green Eyes. Just letting the audience know that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, by this point, now now we're up to 2011. Now I'm living in Queens. Now I'm, I'm a Is little... Is that when you moved there? 2010 is when okay. I moved. So now I'm a little more kind of involved in film community. I go to film festivals and I meet fellow filmmakers at events. So by this point, I know a lot of actors. Um, and it's it's not too hard for me to find yeah. people. Um, if you get into, the, into the, the networking, that's really the next yeah. step. You just got to find people. So uh, I kind of, I had an idea of the actors I would use. Even as I was writing it, I kind of knew what I would do. I knew uh, while writing that it it takes place entirely in a house in Queens where I lived and then the subway. And I, I wrote the scenes in the subway to be as easy to film as I could. There's no audio or anything there. And it's um, it was actually really easy to shoot in the subway. Something I was so nervous about, we just... We just shot that on a Friday at 5 p.m. and no one, nobody cared. No one noticed us. Yeah, no, it, it's it's very it's it's sometimes very easy to do a subway yeah. thing. It just depends on how many people you have and how you're shooting it. It's uh, you know, and I know uh, Alex Valderrama, he was your DP. He yeah. has usually the little DSLRs, yeah. which you know they look like stills cameras. Exactly. So um, with well, the... now, this came about because if I remember correctly. Yeah. It was actually part of... You were adapting something, right? There was um, a, something called Subway Film Series where a group of filmmakers uh, were asked to each adapt a poem. T.S. Eliot wrote poems about despair and emptiness, and no one reads them. But his poems about cats are Broadway royalty. Well, you're a bookie. I'm hedging my bets. And now every time that I try to take the six, I can't. I feel the cue calling me, and I, I feel like I'm being pulled in, in two different directions. Cue to the six, cue to the six train. And actually, the majority of them chose to do a more experimental approach, like 
they they write on the subway for an hour with their little camera and film it and they film abstract footage and they narrate and i was the only one that really did a narrative film hmm. which i'm i'm kind of proud of because i mean like as you know filmmaking is hard and requires money there was no budget for this this was you make it if you can yeah so exactly. it's like if i'm going to do that i want to make something of substance that i can send to festivals i don't want to just make like a little yeah, two you're minute not, you're experimental. not doing a little experimental thing like yeah. in a couple of hours you're yeah. actually taking a couple of days to right. try to shoot this thing and again using things at your disposal uh Having at this point, you're now you can even have little in jokes. Like I think you yeah. had the Finding Nirvana yeah. poster in the movie because <laughs> there are a lot of fans of Finding Nirvana out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing. Like no, no, I'm I'm, I'm just like I'm, I just find it really funny that that's in the movie. <laughs> I, I think more people have seen Q to the Six than have seen Nirvana, so they know about it through through Q to Six. Um, yeah, so it was adapted from this poem, and I actually reached out to the poet, and I told her about the film, and she was really supportive of it. Hmm. So that, that was nice that th this was my first quote-unquote adaptation. So was the poem, like, the... Did, so you create a story about, based on the poem? Yeah, the the poem is the poem that Audrey's character composes in the film. Oh, okay. So it's about her, um, yeah. The film is about the poem being written, yes. and... In addition, and also 9-11. Yeah. Well, because this was around the 10-year anniversary and Osama had just been killed. Uh, also, this was the first film where I really had a musical score. I mean, Nirvana had had one, a little bit of one, but I was really proud of Lisa Redford, who did this score. And she did an original song called Q to the Six Train. So I like that Q to the Six Train started as a poem and then it became a film and then it became a song. It has like all these flowers growing from this pot mm -hmm. uh, or something like uh, And actually something else about Q to the Six was everyone who worked on the crew again was like 25, like 27 at the eldest. And I was really proud of that. I was like, this is a film made by people in their 20s. It's by our generation. <laughs> and I kind of wanted to keep it that way. But then Lisa comes to do the music and she's in her 30s and she ends up com uh, contributing the best part of the film. <laughs> so that fell apart. Age but, before beauty. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but what I find interesting watching the movie, and this is something that I wanted to ask you about, yeah. is I noticed in that film especially, and I find that this kind of happens a good bit in your work, is this sort of blending and going back and forth between, like, you know, really, you know, deeply felt drama and then really crazy comedy. Like, Q of the Six Train is a very funny movie in parts. Like, and it's, it's, and it's not because, you know, you're making fun of 9-11. Mm -hmm. You have a character in there, I think Kate Weinberg yeah. is the actress. Who is basically her manager, uh, the yeah. poet's manager, um, and she just makes shit jokes throughout, yeah. and like is a very egotistical uh, personality. Right. So I was wondering, like, where that comes from. If you, that's just something you liked seeing in movies, or you wanted to try yourself. Um, I, I would say like, uh, Cutest Six Train was written in one sitting. I kind ah. of, a lot of the short films tend to be that way. I just sit down and write something that I knew I could shoot. And that humor, it seemed appropriate for that character. It made her a good foil for the main character. Um, and it's very theatrical, and Kate's a very theatrical actress. Mm. I know some people feel the humor doesn't quite work, or it's it's a I, little forced. I I'm not going to say it. It actually <coughs> works in a weird way. It's <laughs> like it shouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Like I could see why people would be put off by it, because, again, you have a movie about a girl trying to recover from... Is it 9-11, or yeah. is it like the, because it's the anniversary of 9-11? Uh, 
Um, I'm trying to remember. It's like, it, it's more um yeah it's the anniversary that's being triggered by the recent killing of Osama, which yes, he has the newspaper. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and then again, so it's like you have this, and then you have a character who pops up, and yeah, I feel like that character helps make the movie feel more complete than if it was just about like a girl moping around and mm-hmm. you know trying to get on subways or writing a poem. You know that that might be a that might be a decent movie, but by having that comedic element, you have that sort of extra part, which you know, like some people might say, oh, it's like a little sitcomish, possibly. Yeah. But it's it's so over the top that it kind of helps to level out the sadness in the rest. Oh, of thank the piece. you. Um, I, I think um... so. I just because I found that again, that's when. The first time I really noticed as a filmmaker was that, mm-hmm. and then I see that sort of strand running in little bits through your work. I like vulgar women, and that that ha- <laughs> that has been a motif women. in pretty okay. much every one. Mm-hmm. Well, I know one of your guys is uh, Almodovar, right? Yeah, he uh, has a lot. He has director. a lot of vulgar women in his movies. I agree. Well, that that has been kind of a motif throughout all the films that there's often two women, and there there's you know one is a little more grounded and. Uh, I don't know if conservative is the right word, but more quiet one, and the other one's louder and talks more. And that that's in Nirvana, and that kind of continued through all of them. Yeah, I guess there are there are kind of vulgar women in Nirvana, yeah. um, for sure. Yeah, and then definitely uh, in Havan Bushwick, yeah. you have one character who is very, or a couple of characters yeah. who are pretty vulgar, and yeah. you basically like I seem it seems like you like writing women who don't give a shit. Yeah, they're exactly. They're going to like just stand up and just say what's on their minds. And you know, it's very liberating. I know so many great actresses, and I kind of want to give them stuff to do. Mm. So that's how and it they works pre- out. And they usually appreciate that. I guess, yeah, right? they do. It's mm. good. good cast. Yeah. So you <coughs> the six, you screen that, and that gets a good response, you think? Yes, I would say... Um, okay, so with, with both Nirvana and Susie, the kind of criticism that I got was like... Well, these are very well-written films. They're not very visual. They're kind of talking heads. Mm. Uh, like People just say, like, I'd like I'd like to see your next film be a visual one. Yeah. And Q to the Six kind of started to go in that direction, where it was a little more stylized and a little more emphasis on music. Um, so that, uh, I, I would say that got a, a generally positive response. Yeah. Like, again, not raves or anything, but... Uh, because it was part of that Subway film series, that helped it get screened uh, mm. many times. And, um, there so you w- took it around a, a few festivals and stuff like mm-hmm. that? And there was uh, Lisa Redford. She actually brought in some people because she has a bit of a fan base as a musician. Mm. Um, there, there was a mutual friend of ours, Nick Gautier, who uh, wrote an article about her. And then he saw the film, so he wanted to write about me. And... He did, and then I introduced him to other people in our network, and so he kind of made the independent rounds. Independent press covering independent filmmakers. Yeah, it's great, and it, it was all because of Lisa. So, mm. so yeah, that I was mean, a nice. Yeah, thing. it's like, and I feel like our, you know, what when people talk about indie film, mm-hmm. there are there indie film is not just one thing. There are a lot of different levels of indie film. You have what people, a lot of laymans consider indie film is like Sundance and Tribeca yeah. and, and Cannes Film Festival yeah. maybe is like the more prestigious yeah. indie world cinema. Those films are loaded with stars. Those films have millions of dollars of yeah. budgets. Occasionally you might get something like, <laughs> uh, like Beast of the Southern Wild, I think was yeah. a movie, one of those rare Sundance yeah. movies nowadays where, uh, 
Yeah, it was truly you know, independent like, and where, it broke where you in. actually yeah. have like characters who aren't really that well known. Right. Um, but then on the other hand, there's this whole other indie network that we I think kind of more more so go around in. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like it's interesting to kind of have that dichotomy, and yet right. a lot of people don't even know that. But that's sort of where you're coming up, and mm-hmm. maybe I'm coming up a little bit. Um, I mean, do you think those are? It's, but this is a. It's you think it's a pretty interesting community, though, right? It is an interesting community. It's still kind of trying to find itself because yeah. there there is no clear shot to how you go from indie filmmaking to. Uh, mainstream filmmaking. Yeah. That's, it's part of that's because of the industry yeah. too is in like a transition. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I will say Q to the Six, like it is a film that every now and then someone comes up to me and goes like, that's still my favorite of yours. <laughs> like I connected with that one well. And I'm like, wow, really? So, because mm-hmm. I feel like I've come a long way since, but it, it, it's, it's a simple yeah. little story that I think is meant to resonate and it does. Thank but you. But then it feels like though, when you talk about making these incremental steps, yeah. your leap from Q the Six to Havana and Bushwick is like pretty big. And boom, that that is where it came together. Havana, that's where I found the crew that I liked, mm. where I found my voice. I think I I found it a bit before, but that was Havana was the perfect film. Mm. But to start now, thinking about that, so does that come first from Cuba? You yes. Think, or so I mean, you're you're now you're not. Are, are you Cuban descent? Yes. Okay. No, I made it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I made a film called Havana and Bushwick. I, no, I'm just I, you know you, yeah you know so but you know now you you haven't now you haven't been to Cuba. No, you have family that have been there. You yeah, I have that yes. cultural heritage. Yes. Like so, did your have you heard stories about Cuba from your family that Many. they've kind of like stayed maybe in the back of your mind over mm-hmm. the years? Yeah. Um, I mean, all, all my life I've heard stuff and I, I would say I, I'm someone who tries to um, be pretty active in uh, what's going on with uh, Latino culture. Like I said, my mom teaches in Latino studies. Mm. Um, so that's been around <coughs> like since you were a kid yeah. too, just like lots of books about like mm-hmm. Latino subjects, I right. guess, were always around and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like, but just when, when I watch this film, it seems like again you you're making a leap, like in part like visually, but also just in your writing too, that you're making a, a even more of a fantastical leap where you know before you've had characters who are always in the real world, but maybe occasionally they're dealing with you know a funny voice or a ghost. But here it's like I'm gonna go over into fantasy land. You know what's interesting, um, Havana. This started um, well. Two things. One was I went to this New Year's Eve party that's similar to the party you see in the film. Yeah. Uh, also, someone told me, oh, you should make a film about your Cuban background. There's a whole like you know Latino fan base that will see films like that. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. So I sat down to write it again. Like I, I write first draft in one sitting, and I actually remember being a little bit like embarrassed by how lightweight it felt as a feeling like oh this is like you know q to the six train had depth it was about life and death and this feels so like light and like not about anything i'm almost embarrassed to send it out to people and tell Mm -hmm. them this is going to be my next film um the main difference between that and the finished film was i added the element of uh the character having dead parents um he's like batman (laughs) (laughs) well um actually true story my mom is get she's 
She likes my work, but one thing she's criticized a bit is like, you always have dead parents. In Nirvana, you killed me. In Cutest Six Train, you killed me again. Here, you kill both me That's and your father. Funny. Yeah, um, I didn't really think about that as a running thread. I guess. Uh, That's a very fairy tale which thing. Which is funny because your parents are both alive. Yeah, it's they not are. like you're dealing with anything no. personal on that level. Um, my grandmother passed away um, during pre production of Havana. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so that, uh, that added an element to it. You know, another thing was 2012 was an interesting year in my life. Mm. Just um, it kind of began with death in the family, and then uh, the in the summer we shot the film, but there was a lot of just it was an expensive film, and there was a lot of issues going into you it. You need to actually have a budget for yeah. it. Yeah, um, and then um, during post production of this film, I'm there was another film I worked on that there were issues with, um, and so and then towards the end of 2012. Like I moved from my place in uh, Queens to another place in Queens, so oh, so that place is uh, no more. No more. because uh, that's uh, if anybody ever watches Green Eyes, there's a scene in the movie yeah. uh, that was actually shot at Gabe's place, and you can tell the scene because <laughs> there are po- there are things that I put in the scene, and then there's one thing that <laughs> is very much Gabe's, yeah, which I forgot to take down, which. You know, if anybody's really looking and is trying to yeah. look at all visual clues in my movie, they'll kind of wonder why there is a pot dealing, rap talking <laughs> Howard Ashman fan. Yeah, <laughs> I, this is mentioned on the commentary track of the DVD yeah, too. Yeah, but but anyway, so so the end of 2012, it was just like all these things climaxed. Havana and Bushwick was finished. This other film was finished, and I moved and I had a new place, and it was like. You know, the world was supposed to end. December of 2012 literally was a new beginning in my life. Yeah. For those who don't know what Havan Mishwick is about this uh, young, about this guy. Well, he's not that young. He's older than us. Yeah. But he's uh, someone who, uh, he goes to a party and um, he's kind of disillusioned with things. He doesn't really connect with people. And I don't know if it, it's not, is it at the party or it's after that that he meets like this a woman who's uh, Cuban. Uh, Spanish muse. A Spanish muse, I'm sorry. A Spanish muse who decides to open up his... Uh, 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 you know, he decides to open up his consciousness by taking him into... Um, you know, this, to, to, to show him about Cuba mm-hmm. and to try to give him some cultural context. naked eyes are blue sexy song she sang for you let him grow a gentle bride I drain mojitos by her side A passion so strong like a murder Oh, there was a torture And I just heard her say Played many nights till she was What I liked about it was I thought, like, if I just make a movie that's, like, about Cuban culture, then I don't think the average moviegoer is going to connect that much or it'll, it'll appear, appeal to a certain Latino fan base but not mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I liked how it ended up being more like this other world. It becomes about cinema in general and about identity through imagery. 
yeah, uh, very much cinema. It has a fairy tale aspect to it as well. Yeah. I think that you were going for, you know, by ha- you know, you narrate the film. Yeah, and that was an accident because <laughs> that was uh, that sometimes happens. That that was someone else you was going to do it. Else, yeah. Right? Um, and then at one point, uh, Larry, who was the lead actor, he was going to do it, but it was a little too much of him because he's all, he's narrating himself yeah. and then he sings at the end yeah. too. You basically decide to do what, uh, I don't know if you've seen the third man. Yeah. Like the opening of the film has a little bit of narration. It's like, I never went to Vienna right. before the war. Mm-hmm. That's actually the director, Carol Reed. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So in a weird, like obviously very different films. But yeah. I found that kind of interesting because he originally wanted Joseph Cotton to do it, but then he decided to just put himself in there. Well, well a few people have told me like they they have mixed feelings about the rest of the film, but their favorite thing is my narration. <laughs> That's interesting. It, it's been compared yeah. Woody Allen. It's been compared to mm-hmm. Ron Howard on Arrested Development. Yeah, I could see the Ron Howard thing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, the the the, the whimsical narrator who probably has a little bit of a sarcastic edge yeah. to him I, I was listening to lord of the rings music while recording that because I, I was trying to be like ian holm kind of narrating <laughs> ian holm yeah ah, bilbo baggins exactly interesting like so with the look of this film again now you have you know a fuller crew yeah you have people like uh clark mayer and mike di lorenzo yeah. who are great camera guys uh mutual friends and but then like in that whole section where Larry gets taken with yeah. the Spanish muse, and then we also meet the Russian muse. Yeah. Um, like where does that look come from for you? Is that in a weird way? I almost feel like you're going back to again cinema, but maybe even cartoons. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, it feels like uh, D- Daffy Duck and Duck yeah. Muck. He's suddenly like, where's the scenery? Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly that. It's um well there, there's there's a scene when the muse first takes him out. She reaches out and kind of pulls the frame out and you see white behind it mm. it's like she's pulling out the celluloid and and they walk out into the white space and what's interesting is um when you see the movie sometimes uh, the venue may frame the in a way that you don't see the edge of the frame and you don't see that yeah what i've noticed is when the audience can see that more clearly they laugh more because mm-hmm. they really get it that they're stepping out of the film um, yeah, that line, like, we've just stepped out of the movie, that gets a response yeah. when when they, the Russian characters talk about their movies called Moscow and Bushwick. That gets a laugh. It's, it's very, it's, it knows what it's doing. It's being self-conscious, it's being a little meta, but it's having fun with it. It's being playful, it's not trying to, like talk down to the audience in a way it was so weird when we were shooting that because you know we're we were in a a studio called third ward in brooklyn which is sadly no more and it's basically a photography studio so Mm. we have white walls bright lights on them we have the actors coming up and they're talking to each other in different languages not fully knowing what the other is saying And you have to direct them in different languages yeah i mean we we all did in english and i I just said like translated however you want and then we, you know, we know that there's going to be voiceover at parts, but it's not there yet. So, um, I, it, it it was kind of weird. And I remember um, Audrey, who was there, just saying like, "Oh, it's an experimental film," which I don't think of it as, but it no. felt like it when we were shooting it because it was so, it was so out there. Yeah. Well, no, I could see her point because you are trying to experiment with the form. Maybe at the time that you're shooting it, you know, the other people can't really visualize yeah. it the way that you have it in your head, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um. And, yeah, and of course, yeah, it has, the movie has some really wonderful music, too. Yeah, um, and, it, and it was a mix of composers. There was 
original music, and then when we filmed the party scene, um, there were th th those were on there playing. At they, live they were music. they were Audrey's friends, and they were just playing. Um, and actually, the most stressful sh part of that shoot was the party. You'd think it would be the special effects and stuff, but no, it was just. It can be hell, like coordinating a that, bunch of people. That in many one people. Place. Yeah. Yeah, because you know you also, you know, you have to do things piece by piece, right? You have to. If you have like a wide shot, you have to have all of your actors yeah. doing things at the same time. That's the kind of case where all of a sudden, as a filmmaker, you realize, oh, this is what like ads are for. Yeah, you need assistant directors yeah. for a scene like I that. I definitely needed an ad that day and didn't have one. Mm. I mean, like I, Audrey was my producer, but she was acting in the in the scene, so it really it was just me. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, like, I, I had known of Clark for a while because of Green Eyes, but I always thought, like, oh, well, he's too expensive, I can't afford him. And I had known of Dana, my editor, for a while, but mm. I also thought he's too expensive. Uh -huh. And Havana was the movie where they just, it came together, and they, th those two ended up working really well together, and they became my backbone. Yeah, no, it's important if you're a filmmaker, uh, I mean, not every filmmaker needs it, but if you can have a backbone that you, you feel like... You know, I know what I want, but I need other people to help me get there. Mm -hmm. That's really what's important at, at that next stage, for right. sure. Um, you know, once you get those people, then, you know, you're set. Um, yeah, so Van Bushwick, that that process that probably took longer than the other films. Um, it had the longest post of any of them. It was six months of animation and stuff. Yeah, because, like, you're... It's like there are scenes in the movie, if, if anybody sees the movie... Like, Larry is sort of, like, painting the white walls with, like, images of Cuba. Yeah. And that's a that's an interesting thing to see, that you don't get that often anymore. It has, again, like, like out of a cartoon or something like that. Like, a very sweet cartoon. Almost like what I would see, like, a Disney thing. Like, uh, in one of those Donald Duck travelogue yeah. things, they almost had that <laughs> feel, maybe. Oh, like, like, like... the Three Caballeros. So, yeah, Three Caballeros, Saludos Amigos. <laughs> but I'm very flattered. People ask, like, how'd you do that? And I'm like, oh, it's done with animation and stuff. Like, yeah. people ask, did you do that on set somehow? And uh, it's you love to be asked, how'd you do that? Yeah. That's, you're a magician. Yeah, no, don't reveal all your secrets. Right. <laughs> so that that finally comes out. And that, uh, obviously, as you said, you get to play that, like, these, uh, at, more local, at more specific festivals yeah. and stuff. Um, does the, the, the reception probably good, mixed? That that was uh, probably one of the best receptions film got. Um, it was uh, pretty much just good reviews all around. Um, I also uh, it it was nice to uh, work with Dasha Kittredge, who I'd known of for a bit, and it, it felt almost like oh we we haven't worked together before. It feels like we have, <laughs> and it, it was just great culmination to have her. Um, I I just remember that period like late 2012, early 2013, just feeling very satisfied. Having a kind of creative explosion, right? In a way, like, uh, it's almost like Havana and Bushwick was the first film. Like, all the right. others were warm-up acts for that one. That's interesting. That, that was yeah, where... Yeah, so that's where you are... I'm finally fully in control of my faculties. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's sort of like when Kubrick, I think, has said that, uh, like, his first film, real film, was, like, The Killing. Yeah. And everything else was, like, leading up to that. Right. I, I can see that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like, then you follow that up with another ambitious thing, Goddess of Time, right? Yeah, so I, I would say one sort of criticism Havana got, like, it wasn't really criticism, but it was, I'd show it to people, and they'd be like, that was cute. <laughs> 
So your original problem when writing the the script comes back to haunt yeah. you. That you suddenly you write the script and you think, oh, is this a little too light? But I'm gonna do it anyway. And mm. then you actually get really invested in it and you find the depth in it. And I think Van Bushwick has a lot of depth under I do too. the surface mm-hmm. that people need to real. you know, it's a movie that you do feel. Yeah. But obviously, but then of course people, they get the surface reaction when they yeah. see it and then it comes back to, Oh, it's cute. Right. So that, that almost felt like a backhanded compliment you're saying. Exactly that. So it was time to do a film that had that same level of production value and uh, all the hard work and directing, but let's do a really serious story. The name's Orisia. It's a Ukrainian name, but it means goddess in Santeria. Like a little action in the AM. Do me a favor and please try not to kill anyone. Why am I here? I get that I'm like a ghost or something or pick that part up, but why are we in World War II now? Your friend? He's in trouble. I was in Afghanistan. Um, yeah, there isn't that much humor in Goddess of Time, as yeah. far as I could tell. And and why don't you explain what Goddess of Time is? Because I, I still need to wrap my head around <laughs> it after seeing it twice. Um, I would say, um, uh, well, it's about a police officer who is very disillusioned with uh, her job and just feeling um, right and wrong is not very clear-cut, and then... She has an experience with a fortune teller that uh, allows her to see a supernatural power in herself. And she travels in time and she sees – she connects with a veteran and she sees um, his experience in different wars. And that uh, awakens her sense of right and wrong in herself. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and now this comes about – I don't know if I remember this correctly, but I think that I had – seen at one point that like war and peace was an influence yeah um i i would say more like in terms of combining the war uh, not so much political but spiritual so when Mm. you're on the battlefield uh you it's the most violent place in the world and yet you have this spiritual connection with the sky and the eternal the ethereal yeah um actually um it takes place in world war ii there's multiple war scenes. Oh, okay. So it's not just because I thought it was all World War II. Um, you know, there's. I think some parts of the film may have confused people, but mm. uh, she, she's she, the veteran she meets is from the modern war in Afghanistan, and then she travels uh, a few months in time to where we're in a warehouse and he's being tortured by mm, Afghani's. Okay. Then we travel to a World War II battlefield, and then the third setting is supposed to be a future war. Which we didn't really establish that well. They kind of say it in the dialogue, but there's nothing futuristic really about it, other than it seemed like. Well, a lot of the scenes of the when, when the time traveling, they kind of seem to all take place in in one place, mm-hmm. sort of like this wooded area yeah. where like all this chaos is happening and uh, the soldiers are injured and and Dina's character is there trying to make heads or tails of it, mm-hmm. um, but. But yeah, like, were, did you see, like, were any time travel things influential for that, you think? Or was that, were, were, like, were you coming from a different place entirely for that, like, in terms of influences? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I would say, um, I wanted to have a time travel 
uh, aspect there because I wanted to have the modern police officer and I wanted World War II. Um, but I, I would say it was always it was always left kind of abstract exactly why she was traveling or mm, yeah, the reason why it wasn't like a um, you know Back to the Future or something where there's yeah. a, a clear cut explanation for the time machine or anything. Yeah, this has more of like because she, he, she it's because she can't she meets this gypsy woman right that everything gets in motion. So in a way like. You know, you could say you're going back to more fairy tale yeah. types of uh, influences there. Maybe even like an element like uh, I, I almost now just, it just pops in my head. Like when I, like as, as when you're a kid, you have certain stories that you know things yeah. happen that you can't really explain. Like I don't know if you'd ever read this book, uh, The Devil's Arithmetic. No. It was this story about this girl at Passover, and she's kind of like. Oh, I, I really can't stand being here with my family. Oh, this sucks. And she goes outside, and she's suddenly in the Holocaust. Okay, and... that, that's that's actually good. <laughs> like very Twilight Zone ish. That, that yeah, that's Twilight a good Zone that's a good analogy. Maybe a better analogy. Um, yeah, and so you have the same guys with you. You have Clark. You have Dana yep. editing. Like, does this process like how like does this move a little bit smoother or? A little bit different because I mean this time you have like cop cars, yeah, like real New York yeah. City police cop cars, which was something that impressed me. Like, oh, there's a picture of Gabe on Facebook, a <laughs> cop car, and he's not behind the in the back seat, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I would say it was um, it it was just as challenging of as Havana, if not more. Um, I mean. Renting a cop car is not hard. It's just a long process. You need, you need money. You, yeah, you need to get insurance in order to get a permit in order to then rent for a day. And then they're they're watching you with the car. You, they you have you're supervised. Yeah, you can't steal it. Exactly. <laughs> um, hey, so, Mike, come back here. <laughs> so I mean, like it, the scenes of them in the car, they're just going around the block, and even that, like, was just very time consuming to just okay, we're gonna mm. film around, we're gonna drive around the block and do the lines, and then they have to follow us. And then, okay, take two, and that's like another five minutes to set up for take two. Um, and in retrospect, it would have we should have filmed the cop car scenes in one day instead of cramming it with the gypsy scenes that later that same day. So that was like a more than twelve hour day mm. to put all that together. Just to do that, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how long was this shoot? Was this like longest? No, this was four days, but then there was like uh, I guess five days if you include like pickups. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've come to think like maybe uh, it would have been nice to have maybe uh, gotten another location in there and maybe uh, done something a little more with the gypsy. Well, so much I, watching the film, and this isn't a big criticism, but just thinking like as an observation that like maybe in just like a costume may might have even differentiated it a little bit more. Like if you had like the future war look a little bit different than like the past war or something yeah. like that. Well, you know, costumes are expensive, and just the fact we got those World War II costumes, that was, like, a bit of an investment. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I agree, like, in, it, it's been good to have some time away from that film, and it I can see why it, that one split people a bit more, because there were some people... It's pe a little more challenging. There were some people who loved it, and some who said, I just don't get it. I do have to say, the people who did love it 
Really loved it. <laughs> so so there are gods of time fanboys out there and fangirls. I mean, we were written about in the New Age blog. Um, oh, is that, is that uh, a big blog? Inner Spirituality. Um, I mean, like like any blog, like there's so much when, out there. So when the movie gets written up in that, and you know, we bring, we come back to you know when you you yeah. took that spirituality class, yeah. you you know Malcolm X. Does that like is that really? big for you to some like was there a lot of spirituality for Gus as well yes um and actually like um jasmine clemente who wrote the blog is she she's obviously a very spiritual person and she was just saying like all the things she interpreted in it and she felt it was about reincarnation mm. and just she felt it was this feminist um i was gonna say undertone but probably more than that um so i was just very flattered that uh she connected with it so much and she was writing about it and you know what? I'll like you. I'll take anything I can get. If it's the new yeah. age fanboys, fine. I'm I'm glad the film just got noticed. You know, mm. and uh, yeah, and you, maybe you find you you sort of see a point of view that you didn't really think about before. And and it goes back to networking because um, she f- discovered our film when we played at the Act Film Festival, mm. and I I got into that because I'm friends with um, Jackie Roseanne on Facebook. Um, and I, I helped her find a venue and then my film played. So everything connects. Like if I hadn't sent one Facebook message, I wouldn't have had this article written about me months later. Sure. And then, uh, now Dina's in the movie and she's great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am proud of the acting in these films. They, the acting is another thing that got progressively better with each one. So yeah. Well, how'd you find her? Um, I guess she's been some, she's been a lot of good stuff. You know, <laughs> there's a funny story behind that. Um, I saw her interviewed in an um, Indiegogo clip for Nightwing Escalation. Okay. Where um, we both have mutual connections with that web mm-hmm. series. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't see her act. I just saw her interviewed. And Interesting. from so. the interview, she looked like a cop and she looked very Russo-Ukrainian, <laughs> which she's not in real life. So you were almost, yeah, you were going by... That was sort of like her interview for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was an audition. Which is funny because when you watch her in the show, she actually plays a detective. Uh, a Nightwing, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, or or some kind of agent. I think. Yeah, uh, no, it is a, it is a detective. So yeah. she's that that's kind of her niche. She also does a lot of like spy work and uh, um, badass, you know. Um, mm. But she has a lot. Yeah, she has a lot of range. And she for does. Sure. I mean, she like really goes deep I feel like in a mm-hmm. lot of her roles. And this one too, it's like uh you know, she she just in like the little time she has in this movie, she mm-hmm. really crafts a character, it feels like. And maybe some of that was in the writing, but like was that another case where like did she sort of bring that extra thing when you were making it? A bit. Um there um I the producer of the film, my friend Arisia Kutcher and I met her shortly before in another project. Uh, she's Ukrainian, and like all Ukrainians, she hates when people think she's Russian. <laughs> so I, I connected with her, yeah, and then... That's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, that that kind of became this character. Like, the the character is named Arisia, and she's Ukrainian. Uh, and then... So she was an inspiration on the movie. Yeah. So, yeah, Arisia Kutcher, in terms of both inspiring the character and then producing it... And her and Dina connected, and uh, the little uh, necklace Dina wears is, has some Ukrainian heritage significance that Arisia gave her. So, uh, yeah, Dina did research for what's a very short film. 
That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you have people who can be that committed, that's pretty awesome. And let's give props to Nate Steinwalks, who plays the veteran, and mm. he uh, he's always suffering throughout the movie. He's someone <laughs> who is in such pain, and even at the end when he's yeah, in the hospital... He's the same, yeah, he plays the same role, kind of. Or yeah. Different, sort of different roles, but sort of the same role. So uh, he, he was like a last-minute find on Craigslist, so I've always been very happy with how that turned out. Sweet. Um, so now you go from this. Now you have more projects coming up. Now... We should mention that if you you should all check out a certain music video on Vimeo called <laughs> Scrotal Recall. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, that's the next one. <laughs> I guess that was sort of the next project. Yeah. I mean, now you've never done a music video before. Nope. Uh, how, how does this come about? You just like somebody hired you? So uh, my friend, who's also named Gabe, uh, he uh, Gabe two point <laughs> Gabe Hernandez. <laughs> yeah. Um. He uh. You know, as aspiring musician, he works as a teacher, day job, um, and he's like, hey, I've got this song, I want to do it, and he sent it to me, and uh, it was almost like, like, like my natural response would be to not even, like, give it a second thought, and I just went, eh, this could be fun, like, it'll be one day shoot, uh, he lives in, um, uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, so he's okay. right by the Stevens campus, he lives right by his mom, so... We, we just decided, like, oh, it'll be, like, quick little shoot in your house. Your mom will make a cameo at the end. Um, and that came together really fast. And yeah, that's interesting you say that, because when I watch the music video, uh, it seems like you have a lot of locations. I, uh, or maybe you utilized a lot of Yeah. Those. I was burnt out after Goddess, I'll just say that. Um, and in a sense, I'm still kind of getting over that burnout, because hmm. it was a very ambitious shoot, and... Uh, I wanted to just do something that we, we could shoot in one day and didn't have sound except mm-hmm. for one scene. And uh, just kind of was a nice throwback to the college days of filmmaking, yeah. to the Nirvana days of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, no, like, I, you know, it's it's a little, it's a lowbrow, you know, music video. It's very silly comedy. A guy singing about his balls. Yeah, you balls. And then you actually have, I think, two separate cuts of the film, mm-hmm. which... You know, I, I have to be honest, like, I couldn't tell that much of a difference between the two. Like, maybe I saw one extra dildo. Yeah. <laughs> so, the original cut, um, it was, uh, there was some shots of him with a dildo, basically. And okay. he wrote me and said, like, I think it's great, but can we just remove these scenes? And I didn't really want to, so I thought, let's do two cuts. And really, I mean, I, I present them as if there's two separate versions. It's really three shots that are different. Okay. And if you don't really know they're coming, you may not even notice them. Right. Um, yeah, so, like, uh, he has a dildo gun. He shoots it. That's replaced with just him singing and drag in another cut. <laughs> but, uh, okay. no, it was fun to do, and um, it was... Yeah, that guy rapping, he he's he's kind of fun. He he's kind of having having a guess. And the thing was, um, like it kind of got mixed reviews. Like, not there really aren't people that review music videos. Yeah, I mean, maybe you just hear from friends, yeah, and stuff like that, or people who kind of watch it online. And uh, so, so people were like, "Oh, this is a you know, it's very low brow, low production value. It's just a guy without a shirt." But it gets the best response of like anything. The, it seems like the music video is. There, I mean, it accurately reflects the song. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to do that song like Thriller or right. something like that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're going to have like a guy almost, uh, um, I'll say this, it's probably more, it has more production value than like the bum song. 
<laughs> Tom that. Green. There's your criticism. Of there you go. <laughs> because that, that, that suddenly popped in my head is like, what's like Scroll of Recall? Oh yeah, the bum song. <laughs> and that's just him like looking at the camera going like, my bum! I you forgot know. about that. So, I, I, I completely forgot about that. But you have other stuff coming up. So well, 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 Just one last thing about Scroll of Recall in that, you know, I, I love working with Clark. I've always I've worked with him now going on to almost three years. Yeah, but this one you have a, had a new DP. I had a new DP just because of scheduling issues. And in a sense, it, it was also kind of a renewal. Just like, well, I'm doing this now with a new crew. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm seeing if I can still have my same voice with other people behind the camera. And that added a, a new mm-hmm. sense to it. So, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it was very... It, it was what I needed, Scrotal Recall. Yeah, so... <laughs> I like how that sounds out of context. The, the Scrotal Recall was just what I needed. <laughs> I'll let that stand on its own. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and you felt like that was a success in that way, that you know that you can work with other people yeah. now. If you, Even though you have one group that you like, you also have Group B. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, that's that's good to just put something out there really fast. It's like the difference between, you know, an epic and, you know, a little mini something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but what's coming up next for you? Like, I've, I've sort of heard rumblings about, uh, like, a web series. Oh. Where did where did these rumblings come from? From you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or, I don't know, like, I, I'd sort of read that you were maybe going to rework... Uh, like a book or something into a web series? Um, um, I don't know if maybe you're thinking of Prom Night. Huh, I'm not sure. But I I, I just seemed to... Th- I thought you yeah. kind of did maybe a read-through for something that would oh, be more like a series oh. of some sort. Okay, okay. Um, that's a different thing, and okay. I'll get to the web series. No, um, last year I had um, an old script of mine that uh, was written as a feature... And I could never quite get it to work as a feature. Mm. It was it was really long, but even more than that, just the structure of the story was very episodic. So I reworked it into a six-part miniseries, and uh, we did a reading for it, split over two nights, and it was it was just really great to uh, for see an old project take on a new life. And that's called Song of September, mm. and it's a uh, takes place on a film set. And it's about, you know, different things that happen on a movie set. You have the director's plot line and the PA has a plot line. Um, and yeah, that would ideally that would be something I'd like to do like HBO or like uh, mm. like something like True Detective, like where it's a, a short series, like six episodes. Um, no, the, the web series I've been thinking of and it's still being planned. Uh, I'd like to do something for kids or teenagers. I feel that a uh, problem with a lot of indie films is we're all a bunch of pretentious uh, <laughs> 20-somethings, maybe 30-somethings, mm. just making movies about young people, finding out who they are. Mm. And uh, you don't really see stuff for kids. And that's a that's a very lucrative market. So sure. I'm trying to do something like very Nickelodeon-based, mm. which I think could have a realistic shot of existing beyond film festivals, yeah. but actually maybe being purchased mm-hmm. by Nickelodeon or Disney Channel. Um, I, and find I, find, I find that stuff for Nickelodeon sometimes can be, like, if you have the right mindset making it, or the people behind it have a certain intent, it can last, though, past just being a kid. Like, there's a reason why, like, I know of people who actually watch, you know, like, Adventure Time, mm-hmm. you know, who are adults, and that's something that's meant for, you know, real little kids. 
but there's a certain thing to it, or uh, or like a lot of the Nicktoons that were around yeah. when we were kids. I know you love Ren and Stimpy. Well, well Ren's, yeah, that's that's something I love, but also even Rugrats and Rocco's yeah. Modern Life, you know, shows like that where there was a genuineness to it that yeah. there was still a lot, you know, you're still making jokes in the comedy. You're not like just pandering to kids because there's right. a difference between having something that can speak to kids that's actually smart mm-hmm. and you know the kid can actually you know it's not too vo- it's not too vulgar it's not mm-hmm. too adult yeah. but it's at a certain level where a kid can enjoy it but you could still see the adults having fun making it right so maybe that's what you're going for yeah, something that um well I recently uh, I met a guy who he wanted me to film something he was doing and it it was something he wanted to do for his kid, but it was like really juvenile. It was like mm. he dressed up like a kangaroo and sang a song about how to count. And I, <laughs> so it, that was like really small, like Nick Jr. Yeah. kids. And I was just like, you know, kids are smarter than this. Let's give yeah. them something sophisticated. Yeah. And Even Sesame Street can yeah. be sophisticated. Yeah, like yeah. They, the House of Cards Twin parody. Beaks? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> Twin Beaks. So, um, or Mad Men. Oh, no. That I don't know. Oh, that's a skit where that's a skit where uh, it's like an advertising room and everybody's mad, mad. <laughs> no, it's like different emotions. <laughs> All right, but th- but this sounds interesting. So you're thinking of doing something that you want to pitch to kids? Well, pitch to kids networks like Nickelodeon. Okay. Uh, so again, it would be like uh, high school based, um, kind of um, like I didn't really watch it, but you know, like Zoe 101, like those Nickelodeon shows. Um, and I want female characters. Hmm. Um, actually, like, did you ever watch Married with Children? I did, a little bit. I kind of like that sense of humor, like just very dark and sort of lowbrow that kind of kids dig. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's not... We're not preaching a, a happy message here. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, th- there could definitely be a place for that. I, uh, yeah, like... Yeah, there are certain uh, cartoons and certain kids shows that could be dark, for Mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, even Are Are You Afraid of the Dark, even as a kid, you know, you might watch some of it today and think like, oh, that's pretty stupid. But there were some things in there that that could be dark. I think... (laughs) Yeah, there was that episode where they're in the movie theater. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And they basically recreate Nosferatu as a character that comes out of the screen and tries to attack the kids. I would say, like, my, my whole mentality with this is to kind of try and recapture what I liked as a kid. And I, I think let's just not forget, which a lot of indie filmmakers do, that kids are so much a part of the audience. Yeah. And uh, the, let's make the kind of movies they want to see, mm-hmm. which I feel no one is doing right now. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Okay. Uh, and what's the, one last thing I wanted to ask you. Now, is that connected with this uh, SF Olympics? Or is uh, that a different project? Ah, uh, so you knew the title. <laughs> I, I looked it up on IMDb. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I have such a crack research team Just... here at the Waves of Cinema. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I, I hope I'm not, like, spoiling anything, because I'm just... Because it's in, it says it's in post production, so I was just curious about that. Yeah, so that's the title, but I'm kind of keeping it under wraps right now. Okay, so no one will know about it unless they go on IMDb. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, actually, one last thing. So, when talking about that, you want to have women in this show. Yeah. Like, so you see yourself as have like, you're always gonna have really strong women in your films. 
Ideally, that's what I'd like. Yeah. I mean, and that's nothing against men because with with fighting Nirvana, like that was written like okay, these it's about these two women, and then the two men are like the supporting characters, hmm. and I and the men ended up kind of giving the better performances, in my opinion. Hmm. Um, and in, in a way, Goddess was kind of like that too. In some way, like it was written about the female characters, but the men surprised me how good they were in that film. Hmm. So I'm I think that'll it'll you know um, fluctuate. Different yeah. characters. I mean, Havana is really my only film with a male protagonist, and it ended up working really, really well. So, mm. yeah, I'll go back and forth. Okay. Yeah, I was just because I was curious, like, if uh, if that was going to be like sort of your thing again, like when I think I know when I mentioned Almodovar, it's like almost every film he has yeah. is filled with these women who are super full of life, and uh, and Fellini too, I think, yeah. to a degree, had that where. It's like, you can't control these women. You know, you can love them, you can hate them, you can despise them, you can yeah. maybe kiss their boobs. Mm-hmm. And Bergman <laughs> as well. Yeah, Bergman, yeah, to yeah to a large extent. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that, uh, you know, people forget, like, when they think about, oh, these macho directors, these male directors, you know, and granted, there should be more women directors, yeah. of course. But <coughs> that's a given. But it's great when you have these male directors who do celebrate women and mm-hmm. do celebrate femininity and, you know, and they don't try to peg them into, you know, too stereotypical a role. Right. So, yeah, I definitely, and I hope to see more of that with your work and all other good stuff. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, I think we had good, good, good talk. How long we been talking here? Feels uh, like a bit. I think we're going too long. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so I'll just call this a night, and uh, it's been great having Gabe here, and thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely, and uh, I love the wages of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, man. All right, uh, take care, and remember, the wages of cinema is death. Uh, that sounds better when Andrew says it. All right, bye. She sat upon the balcony, inexplicably hiccuping and amicably welcoming him in. Chapter one, my bodily functions. All around town, the kid's known for his gumption. To all who make assumptions, I fucking fart at him. Balloons at birthday parties, I throw darts at him. I'm a hot air balloon, but much less majestic. Instead of propane, I run on black beans and Nesquik. Shit is toxic, get a physicist to test it. Got dirty bombs out the ass, I might get arrested. Made some new emoticons with my scrotum on them. You gon' learn about all that from top to bottom I'ma make sure my ball sack is not forgotten I require that you spoil my ball sack rotten so understand the rules and hand me some tools time to erect a shrine to my family jewels extend the applause January to December all year long make sure these balls get remembered Welcome to my brain, you'll find a slight depravity But even flying seas still answer to the laws of gravity Plunging, plummeting, total freefall My balls flash before your eyes, scrotal recall